0: 8. Return. Spencer fell in love with his beautiful Elizabeth, an Irish girl, wrote his Amoretti, or sonnets, in her honor, and afterwards represented her, in the Fairy Queen, as the beautiful woman dancing among the graces. In 1594 he married Elizabeth, celebrating his wedding with his Epithalamion, one of the most beautiful wedding hymns in any language. Spencer's next visit to London was in 1595, when he published Astrophal. An elegy on the death of his friend Sidney, and three more books of the Fairy Queen. On this visit he lived again at Leicester House, now occupied by the new favorite Essex, where he probably met Shakespeare and the other literary lights of the Elizabethan age. Soon after his return to Ireland, Spencer was appointed Sheriff of Cork, a queer office for a poet, which probably brought about his undoing. The same year Tyrone's rebellion broke out in Munster, Kilcommon, the ancient house of Desmond, was one of the first places attacked by the rebels, and Spencer barely escaped with his wife and two children. It is supposed that some unfinished parts of the fairy queen were burned in the castle. From the shock of this frightful experience Spencer never recovered. He returned to England heartbroken, and in the following year 1599 he died in an inn at Westminster. According to Ben Jonson he died, for want of bread, but whether that is a poetic way of saying that he had lost his property or that he actually died of destitution, will probably never be known. He was buried beside his master Chaucer in Westminster Abbey, the poets of that age thronging to his funeral and, according to Camden, casting their elegies and the pens that had written them into his tomb. Spencer's works. The Fairy Queen is the great work upon which the poet's fame chiefly rests. The original plan of the poem included twenty-four books, each of which was to recount the adventure and triumph of a knight who represented a moral virtue. Spencer's purpose, as indicated in a letter to Raleigh which introduces the poem, is as follows, to portray it in Arthur, before he was king, the image of a brave knight, perfected in the twelve private moral virtues, as Aristotle hath devised, which is the purpose of these first twelve books, which if I find to be well accepted. I may be perhaps anchored to frame the other part of politicate virtues in his person. After that he came to be king. Each of the virtues appears as a knight. Fighting his opposing vice. And the poem tells the story of the conflicts. It is therefore purely allegorical. Not only in its personified virtues but also in its representation of life as a struggle between good and evil. In its strong moral element the poem differs radically from Orlando Furioso. Upon which it was modeled. Spencer completed only six books, celebrating holiness, temperance, chastity, friendship, justice, and courtesy. We have also a fragment of the seventh, Treating of Constancy, but the rest of this book was not written, or else was lost in the fire at Kilcommon. The first three books are by far the best, and judging by the way the interest lags and the allegory grows incomprehensible, it is perhaps as well for Spencer's reputation that the other 18 books remained a dream argument of the fairy queen from the introductory letter we learn that the hero visits the queen's court in fairyland while she is holding a twelve days festival on each day some distressed person appears unexpectedly tells a woeful story of dragons of enchantresses or of distressed beauty or virtue and asks for a champion to right the wrong and to let the oppressed go free sometimes a knight volunteers or begs for the dangerous mission again the duty is assigned by the queen and the journeys and adventures of these knights are the subjects of the several books. The first recounts the adventures of the Red Cross Knight, representing holiness, and the Lady Una, representing religion. Their contests are symbolical of the worldwide struggle between virtue and faith on the one hand, and sin and heresy on the other. The second book tells the story of Suragayan, or Temperance, the third, of Brito Martis, representing chastity, the fourth, fifth, and sixth of Campbell and Triamon Friendship, Artegal Justice, and Sir Calidore Courtesy. Spencer's plan was a very elastic one and he filled up the measure of his narrative with everything that caught his fancy, historical events and personages under allegorical masks, beautiful ladies, chivalrous knights, giants, monsters, dragons, sirens, enchanters, and adventurers enough to stock a library of fiction, if you read Homer or Virgil. You know his subject in the first strong line, if you read Cadman's paraphrase or Milton's epic. The introduction gives you the theme, but Spencer's great poem with the exception of a single line in the prologue, Fierce wars and faithful loves shall moralize my song, gives hardly a hint of what is coming. As to the meaning of the allegorical figures, one is generally in doubt. In the first three books the shadowy Fairy Queen sometimes represents the glory of God and sometimes Elizabeth. Who was naturally flattered by the parallel. Brito-Marty's is also Elizabeth. The Red Cross Knight is Sidney. The model Englishman, Arthur, who always appears to rescue the oppressed, is Lester, which is another outrageous flattery. Una is sometimes religion and sometimes the Protestant Church, while Duessa represents Mary Queen of Scots, or General Catholicism. In the last three books Elizabeth appears again as Mercilla, Henry Ivey of France as Bourbon, the war in the Netherlands as the story of Lady Belgy, Raleigh as Time is, the earls of Northumberland and Westmoreland lovers of Mary or duessa as Blandemore and Paradell, and so on through the wide range of contemporary characters and events, till the allegory becomes as difficult to follow as the second part of Goethe's Faust, poetical form, for the fairy Queen Spencer invented a new verse form, which has been called since his day the Spencerian stanza. Because of its rare beauty it has been much used by nearly all our poets in their best work. The new stanza was an improved form of Ariosto's Otavarim line eight-line stanza and bears a close resemblance to one of Chaucer's most musical verse forms in the monk's tale. Spencer's stanza is in nine lines, eight of five feet each and the last of six feet, rhyming a book. A few selections from the first book, which is best word of reading, are reproduced here to show the style and melody of the verse. A gentle knight was breaking on the plain. A clad in mighty armor and silver shield, where an in old dints of deep a wounds did remain, the cruel marks of many a bloody field. Yet armor still that time did he never wield. His angry steed he did chide, his foaming bent, as much disdaining to the curvy to yield. Full I lonely knight he seemed, and fair did sit, as one for knightly juice's and fierce encounters fit. And on his breast a bloody cross he bore, the dear remembrance of his dying lord. For whose sweet a sake that glorious batch he wore, and dead, as living ever, him adored, upon his shield the like was also scored, for sovereign hope, which in his help he had, right faithful truth he was indeed and word, but of his cheer did see me to Solomon said, Yet nothing did he dread, but ever was a dread, this sleepy bit, from the dwelling of Morpheus, invites us to linger, and more to lull him in his slumber soft a trickling stream from high rock tumbling down, and ever drizzling rain upon the loft, mixed with a murmuring wind, much like the song of swarming bees, did cast him in a swoon, no other noise, nor people's troublous cries, as still or tannily the walled town, might there be heard, but careless quiet lies, wrapped in eternal silence far from any mise, the description of Una shows the poet's sense of ideal beauty, one day, nigh weary of the irksome way. From her unhasty beast she did alight, and on the grass her dainty limbs did lay in secrete shadow, far from all men's sight, from her fair head her fillet she undight, and laid her stole aside, her angel's face, as the great eye of heaven, shined bright, and made a sunshine in the shady place, did never more lie behold such heavenly grace, it fortuned, out of the thickest wood a ramping lion rushed suddenly, hunting full of greedy after salvage blood, soon as the royal virgin he did spy with gaping mouth at her ran greedily, to have at once devoured her tender course, but to the prey when as he drew more New York, his bloody rage ass wagged with remorse, and, with the sight must, forget his furious force, instead thereof he kissed her weary feet, and licked her lily hands with fawning tongue, as he her wronged innocence did weep. oh how can beauty maester the most strong, and simple truth subdue avenging wrong, minor poems, next to his masterpiece, The Shepherds' Calendar 1579 is the best known of Spencer's poems, though, as his first work. It is below many others in melody. It consists of twelve pastoral poems, or eclogues, one for each month of the year. The themes are generally rural life, nature, love in the fields, and the speakers are shepherds and shepherdesses. To increase the rustic effect Spencer uses strange forms of speech and obsolete words to such an extent that Johnson complained his works are not English or any other language. Some are melancholy poems on his lost Rosalind, some are satires on the clergy, one, the briar and the oak, is an allegory, one flatters Elizabeth, and others are pure fables touched with the Puritan spirit. They are written in various styles and meters, and show plainly that Spencer was practicing and preparing himself for greater work. Other noteworthy poems are, Mother Hubbard's Tale, a satire on society, an elegy on the death of Sidney, Amoretti, or sonnets, to his Elizabeth, the marriage hymn, Epithalamion; and four hymns, on love, beauty, heavenly love, and heavenly beauty. There are numerous other poems and collections of poems, but these show the scope of his work and are best worth reading. Importance of the Shepherd's Calendar, the publication of this work, in 1579, by an unknown writer who signed himself modestly, in merito, marks an important epoch in our literature. We shall appreciate this better if we remember the long years during which England had been without a great poet. Chaucer and Spencer are often studied together as poets of the Renaissance period, and the idea prevails that they were almost contemporary. In fact, nearly two centuries passed after Chaucer's death. Years of enormous political and intellectual development. And not only did Chaucer have no successor but our language had changed so rapidly that Englishmen had lost the ability to read his lines correctly. This first published work of Spencer is noteworthy in at least four respects, first, it marks the appearance of the first national poet in two centuries, second, it shows again the variety and melody of English verse, which had been largely a tradition since Chaucer, third, it was our first pastoral. The beginning of a long series of English pastoral compositions modeled on Spencer, and as such exerted a strong influence on subsequent literature, and fourth, it marks the real beginning of the outburst of great Elizabethan poetry. Characteristics of Spencer's poetry. The five main qualities of Spencer's poetry are one a perfect melody, two a rare sense of beauty, three a splendid imagination, which could gather into a one poem heroes, knights, ladies, dwarfs, demons, and dragons classic mythology, stories of chivalry, and the thronging ideals of the Renaissance, all passing in gorgeous procession across an ever-changing and ever-beautiful landscape, for a lofty moral purity and seriousness, five a delicate idealism, which could make all nature and every common thing beautiful. In contrast with these excellent qualities the reader will probably note the strange appearance of his lines due to his fondness for obsolete words, like ainaize and "shame." and his tendency to coin others, like mercy, to suit his own purposes. It is Spencer's idealism, his love of beauty, and his exquisite melody which have caused him to be known as, the poet's poet. Nearly all our subsequent singers acknowledge their delight in him and their indebtedness. Macaulay alone among critics voices a fault which all who are not poets quickly feel, namely that, with all Spencer's excellences, he is difficult to read, The modern man loses himself in the confused allegory of the fairy queen, skips all but the marked passages, and softly closes the book in gentle weariness. Even the best of his longer poems, while of exquisite workmanship and delightfully melodious, generally fail to hold the reader's attention. The movement is languid, there is little dramatic interest, and only a suggestion of humor. The very melody of his verses sometimes grows monotonous, like a Strauss waltz too long continued. We shall best appreciate Spencer by reading at first only a few well-chosen selections from The Fairy Queen and The Shepherd's Calendar, and a few of the minor poems which exemplify his wonderful melody. Comparison between Chaucer and Spencer, at the outset it is well to remember that, though Spencer regarded Chaucer as his master, two centuries intervene between them, and that their writings have almost nothing in common. We shall appreciate this better by a brief comparison between our first two modern poets. Chaucer was a combined poet and man of affairs, with the latter predominating, though dealing largely with ancient or medieval material. He has a curiously modern way of looking at life. Indeed, he is our only author preceding Shakespeare with whom we feel thoroughly at home. He threw aside the outgrown metrical romance, which was practically the only form of narrative in his day. Invented the art of storytelling in verse, and brought it to a degree of perfection which has probably never since been equaled. Though a student of the classics, he lived wholly in the present, studied the men and women of his own time, painted them as they were, but added always a touch of kindly humor or romance to make them more interesting. So his mission appears to be simply to amuse himself and his readers. His mastery of various and melodious verse was marvelous and has never been surpassed in our language but the English of his day was changing rapidly, and in a very few years men were unable to appreciate his art, so that even to Spencer and Dryden, for example, he seemed deficient in metrical skill. On this account his influence on our literature has been much less than we should expect from the quality of his work and from his position as one of the greatest of English poets, like Chaucer. Spencer was a busy man of affairs, but in him the poet and the scholar always predominates. He writes as the idealist, describing men not as they are but as he thinks they should be, he has no humor, and his mission is not to amuse but to reform. Like Chaucer he studies the classics and contemporary French and Italian writers, but instead of adapting his material to present-day conditions, he makes poetry, as in his eclogues for instance, more artificial even than his foreign models, where Chaucer looks about him and describes life as he sees it. Spencer always looks backward for his inspiration, he lives dreamily in the past, in a realm of purely imaginary emotions and adventures, his first quality is imagination, not observation, and he is the first of our poets to create a world of dreams, fancies, and illusions, his second quality is a wonderful sensitiveness to beauty, which shows itself not only in his subject matter but also in the manner of his poetry, like Chaucer, he is an almost perfect workman. But in reading Chaucer we think chiefly of his natural characters or his ideas, while in reading Spencer we think of the beauty of expression. The exquisite Spencerian stanza and the rich melody of Spencer's verse have made him the model of all our modern poets. Minor poets though Spencer is the one great non-dramatic poet of the Elizabethan age. A multitude of minor poets demand attention of the student who would understand the tremendous literary activity of the period. One needs only to read the Paradise of Dainty Devices 1576, or a gorgeous gallery of lamp inventions 1578, or any other of the miscellaneous collections to find hundreds of songs, many of them of exquisite workmanship, by poets whose names now awaken no response. A glance is enough to assure one that over all England, the sweet spirit of song had arisen, like the first chirping of birds after a storm. Nearly 200 poets are recorded in the short period from 1558 to 1625, and many of them were prolific writers. In a work like this, we can hardly do more than mention a few of the best known writers, and spend a moment at least with the works that suggest Marlowe's description of infinite riches in a little room. The reader will note for himself the interesting union of action and thought in these men, so characteristic of the Elizabethan age for most of them were engaged chiefly in business or war or politics, and literature was to them a pleasant recreation rather than an absorbing profession. Thomas Sackville 1536-1608 Sir Thomas Sackville, Earl of Dorset and Lord High Treasurer of England, is generally classed with Wyatt and Surrey among the predecessors of the Elizabethan age. In imitation of Dandy's Inferno, Sackville formed the design of a great poem called The Mirror for Magistrates under guidance of an allegorical personage called Sorrow. He meets the spirits of all the important actors in English history. The idea was to follow Lydgate's fall of princes and let each character tell his own story, so that the poem would be a mirror in which present rulers might see themselves and read this warning, who reckless rules right soon may hope to rue. Sackville finished only the induction and the complaint of the Duke of Buckingham. These are written in the rhyme royal, and are marked by strong poetic feeling and expression. Unfortunately, Sackville turned from poetry to politics, and the poem was carried on by two inferior poets, William Baldwin and George Ferrers. Sackville wrote also, in connection with Thomas Norton, the first English tragedy, Ferrex and Porix, called also Gorbodic, which will be considered in the following section on the rise of the drama, Philip Sidney 1554-1586. Sidney, the ideal gentleman, the Sir Calidor of Spencer's Legend of Courtesy, is vastly more interesting as a man than as a writer, and the student is recommended to read his biography rather than his books. His life expresses better than any single literary work, the two ideals of the age, personal honor and national greatness. As a writer he is known by three principal works, all published after his death, showing how little importance he attached to his own writing, even while he was encouraging Spencer. The Arcadia is a pastoral romance, interspersed with eclogues in which shepherds and shepherdesses sing of the delights of rural life though the work was taken up idly as a summer's pastime it became immensely popular and was imitated by a hundred poets the apollo before poetry 1595 generally called the defense of poesy appeared in answer to a pamphlet by stephen gosson called the school of abuse 1579 in which the poetry of the age and its unbridled pleasure were denounced with puritan thoroughness and conviction. The Apollo D is one of the first critical essays in English, and though its style now seems labored and unnatural, the pernicious result of Ufoos and his school, it is still one of the best expressions of the place and meaning of poetry in any language. Astrophil and Stella is a collection of songs and sonnets addressed to Lady Penelope Devereux, to whom Sidney had once been betrothed, they abound in exquisite lines and passages, containing more poetic feeling and expression in the songs of any other minor writer of the age. George Chapman 1559, 1634, Chapman spent his long, quiet life among the dramatists, and wrote chiefly for the stage, his plays, which were for the most part merely poems in dialogue, fell far below the high dramatic standard of his time and are now almost in red, his most famous work is the Metrical Translation of the Iliad 1611 and of the Odyssey 1614. Chapman's Homer, though lacking the simplicity and dignity of the original, has a force and rapidity of movement which makes it superior in many respects to Pope's more familiar translation. Chapman is remembered also as the finisher of Marlowe's Hero and Leander, in which, apart from the drama, the Renaissance movement is seen at perhaps its highest point in English poetry out of scores of long poems of the period, Hero and Leander and the Fairy Queen are the only two which are even slightly known to modern readers, Michael Drayton 1563-1631, Drayton is the most voluminous and, to antiquarians at least, the most interesting of the minor poets, he is the Laomone of the Elizabethan age, and vastly more scholarly than his predecessor, his chief work is Polyalbion, an enormous poem of many thousand couplets, describing the towns, mountains, and rivers of Britain, with the interesting legends connected with each. It is an extremely valuable work and represents a lifetime of study and research. Two other long works are the Baron's Wars and the Heroic Epistle of England, and besides these were many minor poems. One of the best of these is the Battle of Agincourt, a ballad written in the lively meter which Tennyson used with some variations in the Charge of the Light Brigade, and which shows the old English love of brave deeds and of the songs that stir a people's heart in memory of noble ancestors. I, I, I. The first English dramatists the origin of the drama. First the deed, then the story, then the play, that seems to be the natural development of the drama in its simplest form. The great deeds of a people are treasured in its literature, and later generations represent in play or pantomime certain parts of the story which appeal most powerfully to the imagination. Among primitive races the deeds of their gods and heroes are often represented at the yearly festivals, and among children, whose instincts are not yet blinded by artificial habits, one sees the story that was heard at that time repeated next day in vigorous action, when our boys turn scouts and our girls princesses, precisely as our first dramatists turn to the old legends and heroes of Britain for their first stage productions. To act a part seems as natural to humanity as to tell a story, and originally the drama is but an old story retold to the eye. A story put into action by living performers, who for the moment, make believe, or imagine themselves to be the old heroes. To illustrate the matter simply, there was a great life lived by him who was called the Christ. Inevitably the life found its way into a literature. And we have the Gospels. Around the life and literature sprang up a great religion. Its worship was at first simple. The common prayer, the evening meal together, the remembered words of the Master, and the closing hymn. Gradually, a ritual was established, which grew more elaborate and impressive as the centuries went by. Scenes from the Master's life began to be represented in the churches, especially at Christmas time, when the story of Christ's birth was made more effective to the eyes of a people who could not read by a babe in a manger surrounded by magi and shepherds with a choir of angels chanting the Gloria in Excelsis. Other impressive scenes from the Gospel followed, then the Old Testament was called upon, until a complete cycle of plays from the creation to the final judgment was established, and we have the mysteries and miracle plays of the Middle Ages. Out of these came directly the drama of the Elizabethan age. Periods in the development of the drama 1, the religious period. In Europe, as in Greece, the drama had a distinctly religious origin. The first characters were drawn from the New Testament, and the object of the first plays was to make the church service more impressive, or to emphasize moral lessons by showing the reward of the good and the punishment of the evil doer. In the latter days of the Roman Empire the church found the stage possessed by frightful plays, which debased the morals of a people already fallen too low. Reform seemed impossible, the corrupt drama was driven from the stage, and plays of every kind were forbidden. But mankind loves a spectacle. And soon the Church itself provided a substitute for the forbidden plays in the famous Mysteries and Miracles. Miracle and Mystery Plays. In France the name Miracle was given to any play representing the lives of the saints. While the Mystia represented scenes from the life of Christ or stories from the Old Testament associated with the coming of Messiah. In England this distinction was almost unknown. The name Miracle was used indiscriminately for all plays having their origin in the Bible or in the lives of the saints, and the name Mystery, to distinguish a certain class of plays, was not used until long after the religious drama had passed away. The earliest miracle of which we have any record in England is the Ludus De Sancta Catharina, which was performed in Dunstable about the year 1110. It is not known who wrote the original play of Saint Catherine but our first version was prepared by Geoffrey of St Albans, a French school teacher of Dunstable. Whether or not the play was given in English is not known, but it was customary in the earliest plays for the chief actors to speak in Latin or French, to show their importance, while minor and comic parts of the same play were given in English. For four centuries after this first recorded play the miracles increased steadily in number and popularity in England. They were given first very simply and impressively in the churches, then, as the actors increased in number and the plays in liveliness, they overflowed to the churchyards, but when fun and hilarity began to predominate even in the most sacred representations, the scandalized priests forbade plays altogether on church grounds. By the year 1300 the miracles were out of ecclesiastical hands and adopted eagerly by the town guilds. And in the following two centuries we find the church preaching against the abuse of the religious drama which it had itself introduced, and which at first had served a purely religious purpose. But by this time the miracles had taken strong hold upon the English people, and they continued to be immensely popular until, in the 16th century, they were replaced by the Elizabethan drama. The early miracle plays of England were divided into two classes, the first, given at Christmas, included all plays connected with the birth of Christ, the second, at Easter, included the plays relating to his death and triumph. By the beginning of the 14th century all these plays were, in various localities, united in single cycles beginning with the creation and ending with the final judgment. The complete cycle was presented every spring, beginning on Corpus Christi day, and as the presentation of so many plays meant a continuous outdoor festival of a week or more, this day was looked forward to as the happiest of the whole year, probably every important town in England had its own cycle of plays for its own guilds to perform, but nearly all have been lost, at the present day only four cycles exist except in the most fragmentary condition, and these, though they furnish an interesting commentary on the times, add very little to our literature, the four cycles are the Chester and York plays, so called from the towns in which they were given the Townley or Wakefield plays, named for the Townley family, which for a long time owned the manuscript, and the Coventry plays, which on doubtful evidence have been associated with the Greyfriars Franciscans of Coventry. The Chester cycle has 25 plays, the Wakefield 30, the Coventry 42, and the York 48. It is impossible to fix either the date or the authorship of any of these plays. We only know certainly that they were in great favor from the 12th to the 16th century. The York plays are generally considered to be the best, but those of Wakefield show more humor and variety, and better workmanship. The former cycle especially shows a certain unity resulting from its aim to represent the whole of man's life from birth to death. The same thing is noticeable in Cursor Mundi, which, with the York and Wakefield cycles, belongs to the 14th century. At first the actors as well as the authors of the Miracles were the priests and their chosen assistants. Later, when the town guilds took up the plays and each guild became responsible for one or more of the series, the actors were carefully selected and trained. By four o'clock on the morning of Corpus Christi all the players had to be in their places in the movable theaters, which were scattered throughout the town in the squares and open places. Each of these theaters consisted of a two-story platform, set on wheels. The lower story was a dressing room for the actors, the upper story was the stage proper, and was reached by a trapdoor from below. When the play was over the platform was dragged away, and the next play in the cycle took its place. So in a single square several plays would be presented in rapid sequence to the same audience. Meanwhile the first play moved on to another square, where another audience was waiting to hear it. Though the plays were distinctly religious in character, There is hardly one without its humorous element. In the play of Noah, for instance, Noah's shrewish wife makes fun for the audience by wrangling with her husband. In the crucifixion play Herod is a prankish kind of tyrant who leaves the stage to rant among the audience, so that to, out-haired Herod, became a common proverb. In all the plays the devil is a favorite character and the butt of every joke. He also leaves the stage to play pranks or frighten the wondering children. On the side of the stage was often seen a huge dragon's head with gaping red jaws, belching forth fire and smoke, out of which poured a tumultuous troop of devils with clubs and pitchforks and gridirons to punish the wicked characters and to drag them away at last, howling and shrieking, into hell mouth, as the dragon's head was called, so the fear of hell was ingrained into an ignorant people for four centuries, alternating with these horrors were bits of rough horseplay and domestic scenes of peace and kindliness representing the life of the English fields and homes, with these worder songs and carols, like that of,